Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is George Macharco, host of DC Entrepreneur, here on WERA 96.7 FM. I'm here today in the studio with David Ramos. David is an instructor for the Graphic Design Department at American University, and he's involved in the Design and Tech team with Knowledge Commons DC. Welcome today, David. Thanks. Glad to be here. So, David, let's talk about Knowledge Commons DC. I recently got involved with Knowledge Commons DC uh, about a month ago and taught a class there. It's a great community uh, participatory kind of uh, organization. Can you talk to me about what Knowledge Commons DC does for the community? We are delighted to have you. Thank you so much for teaching that class. It's That was a great example of the kinds of classes we do. We're a volunteer-run nonprofit organization, does about probably 200 classes a year on everything from what you taught, which is podcasting, to we've had classes on lockpicking, on foraging, on seed saving, on D.C. statehood, on the history of music with Madonna as a case study. It's classes about any subject you might imagine. But here's the thing. They're all taught by people who are motivated because they care about the subject and want to share it. They might be experts. We've had we've had computer security experts talk about computer, about computer security, intro classes, advanced classes. And we've also had people who just recently discovered something and started doing research in the library and want to share that knowledge as well. It's all volunteer-based, all about all built from a kind of a passion for learning, curiosity, and sharing that curiosity. So I understand that you were involved with Knowledge Commons DC from the very inception. Can you please talk about how it's developed over the years? Well, I should, I should, give, some, I should give credit to the original founders. One of them is Kate Clark and Lucy Burnett. They've both moved on from the DC area, but they alighted here in 2011, both drawn by the idea of starting up a free school. Starting up a free school with this... What began as an arts project, an arts project with some NEA funding, in residence at a gallery, on Fleur Gallery down in Southeast DC, took off. I think there were probably about eight people, eight people involved at the very inception. I wasn't one of them. I was a student in the first session and very quickly became involved, supporting websites, supporting design, and now helping in a lot of aspects of how the organization runs. It's. The founders, the founders had this idea of it because they'd, they'd known a group up in New York City, someone called Trade School, which is a similar model. Trade School has this idea that, okay, we, we want to share learning, but, it's, but we also want to give some kind of, some kind of offering to, to uh, recognize the value that an instructor's time has. So Trade School offers classes not... Not for money, but for something the instructor wants. Say, I'd like help finding a New York City apartment. Or the instructor could say, I'd like some bread that you, that you baked or bought for me. And KCDC works in a similar way, but with the idea of a gift, that the instructor is working, offering the class because they want to share something, and there isn't this idea of a quid pro quo, except 
for thanks and respect. <laughs> so there's not a barter system at play here, but it's still a unique model. And I, I think it works because we happen to live in a city where there's tons of people that just have a lot of knowledge in various areas. You've got people that work at the Smithsonian. You've got people that work on the Hill. So historians here, anyone can really share and give back to Knowledge Commons. So talk to me about some of the classes that have happened recently at KCDC. Oh, most recent classes. It's been, it's, a, it is a joy to be in DC because we get such a breadth of people and people are willing to share. So there's a, there's a class about, about Uyghur food, Uyghur food being a food from central, a, a people from Central Asia, class offered by someone who knew the country, had, I believe, worked there, and taught the class by providing samples of food, speaking about the food, and also then um, bringing people, bringing a group of about a dozen students together in an outdoor space to share the experience of eating this stuff. That's that's one class. We had, we've had another class, a couple of remarkably successful classes about photography. There's taught by an instructor up at Montgomery College. One of them is a class about understanding DSLRs, so understanding a professional or semi-pro-grade camera better, doing this out in the field. And then a similar class, something more experimental that he taught about making art with scanners. Mm. They're all participatory. So you might notice food classes involve eating food. The, the classes about making things involve gate touching stuff with your hands and experimenting with it and learning what it feels like. We, we've had a few lecture-based classes. They can be quite successful, but we're, we're interested in pushing the boundaries of how you might structure a class conventionally. So how do people get involved in pitching their ideas to Knowledge Commons? It's been an interesting story. I think originally KCDC folks went out and tried to seek out interesting potentially interesting teachers all around the community, mostly by word of mouth, referrals. It's something, there's a relationship here to getting business in for a, consult, for a client services company. Most, at least in design, the client services companies say the, the rule is that you don't get people by advertising, you get people by referrals. We're now getting mostly referrals, people who've taught people who tell their friends that they, they should teach, or, and this is the best part, we get a lot of students who decide they want to teach. So we're forming this community of people who move from being a student to proposing a class to eventually helping organize or sometimes skipping the intermediate stages entirely. So when it comes down to getting referrals, do you mean that uh, people that teach classes there are finding that they've they found business contacts while getting involved with Knowledge Commons. I should be, you know, I, I'm curious about that one. Yeah. I don't know if people have found business. Con no, that's not true. I've found business contacts. <laughs> okay. I don't know how how widespread the business contacts in thing is, but I certainly have. It's we've KCDC in contact is something we'd like to work on. We know that we're trying to build a community. We know that we get people cycling, student, organizer, teacher, and we know that people tend to make friends somewhat, we're interested in furthering that kind of building of connection on. Nice. So it sounds like for people that are entrepreneurs that listen to DC Entrepreneur, this is a great way to share the knowledge that you've gained 
as uh, as a business professional uh, starting your own um, business. And and so this is a great way to give back to the community and also share the knowledge and pay it forward. So, uh, David, talk to me about some of the classes that you've taught at Knowledge Commons DC. Oh, I've done a few classes. I've um, in trade, I teach graphic design in a college, and I've used KCDC as an opportunity to look at a lot of questions that you don't normally get to look at in a conventional college curriculum. So I'm curious about a few things. One of them is, how does how did American cities get to be the way that they are today? That's, that's something you can talk you, that we address pretty well in writing, in museums, in a, we've KCDC has actually just launched a podcast addressing that question, too. But I think you can learn that by going on tours, by going, walking the ground, biking the ground, it's a lot of ground to cover, and looking at the landscape that's there, trying to read the landscape as a text and understand the story about a building, a stream, a tree in codes. Liquid Assets is a bike tour series I've done. It proposes that, hey, we've got We've got a lot of old rivers in Washington, D.C. Most of them are gone, but they've shaped the way the city is today. And if you are, a, are you a whiskey fan, perhaps, or a, a craft beer fan by any chance? I've been known to imbibe, yes. <laughs> well, in, if you like locally produced beers or whiskeys, spirits, everyone, everyone who's producing in Washington, D.C. is where they are because that's where the streams were in some very distant, removed sense. That class, that liquid assets class, pieces apart that logic. Great. So now, what was the process that you came up with when you decided to, to teach these classes? Did you have a depth of, of knowledge and experience in that, in that area? Or was it something that you were just fascinated by that you wanted to teach? I'm, I'm lucky. I'm lucky because I get to, I, to a certain extent, my job involves looking at questions that I'm curious about. And these are all questions that I've been curious about. It seems a natural extension to say, okay, you've been looking at streams in Washington, D.C. You've been digitizing maps of where streams flowed in D.C. Why don't we try and make that accessible to people who are a little unfamiliar with it? Something as candidly dorky as where the where the canal ran in downtown D.C., you'll get a surprising number of people who want to know. And the background of the canal was what Georgetown was really where D.C. developed from, and it was the main kind of shipping transport location for the the city whenever it was, you know, before it was Washington, D.C. So um, when you do these tours of things, you're actually going out and you're, you're exploring on foot. We are walking the ground, or I usually lead bike tours because big ambitions, You, no one walks fast enough, and a bike you can cover enough ground. But yes, we're out there in the field. Out there in the field. Great. So let's, uh, let's talk to... Let's, uh, let's talk about your involvement with graphic design at American University. You're an instructor at American University. You teach in the graphic design department. Uh, what currently spurs your interest in the convergence of design with technology right now? It's a fabulous field. I think that's, I like the question. It's probably why I've ended up working in design to begin with. I've, we're in a funny place. We've got, my department chair said at one point, I think that it's, we've got, we're teaching about, about 50% more material in classes than we taught 20 years ago. And that's all because computers have boom, 
suddenly become a vital part of what it is that designers do. And yet none of the old concerns have gone away. How you teach that, I mean, it's, it's, there's a certain challenge to covering that amount of material and covering it in a way that is that enables students to grow rather than to, say, know how to use a piece of software today and not be able to apply that knowledge to a new piece of software a year from now. One of the things that I've noticed in a lot of the technology code schools is that user experience design has been something that you see a lot more of nowadays. Talk to me about how user experience design plays into design thinking and graphic design as a uh, as an educational um, area. It's design is suddenly this. It's a wonder. It's a wonderful thing to be working in now. The design field's gotten to be a very big tent, and I, I'm hoping that it's a friendly and welcoming tent in the sense that we have many different versions of design, all of which are playing together nicely and learning from one another. The user experience is an interesting question because it's at, in some ways, of thinking about user experience. User experience is a way of looking at design that is more analytical, less about less about communication, emotion, and some of the more subjective forms of experience than traditional graphic design is. It's, um, it, apply, it also asks for thinking about design empirically, testing, testing, doing research, studying user needs. That's, in a way, a departure from the graphic design tradition, but um, it's also something that is very deeply rooted in older forms of graphic design, too. So that's the trick. That's the tr- How do you teach this thing that is in some ways a little unfamiliar and a little novel, and yet not as novel as its great exponents say it is? And the interesting thing that I've noticed about it, too, is it seems to have uh, become popular in tandem with the rise of big data, big data. Um, I never know what the pronunciation of that is. Big data, big data. I heard one is British, one is the uh, the American pronunciation. I say I'm both. We should A-B test it. Yeah. (laughs) That's exactly like how a designer I know would would think about that. Um, How are people making sense of information right now graphically? It's a challenge. AU is a fabulous place to be teaching because we've got, it's a liberal arts school well, okay. It's a school with liberal arts traditions and uh, students interested, very interested in the world broadly. We've got a goodly number of students who are able to take courses across the curriculum. Many of them majoring or in, in double majoring, minoring in graphic design, minoring in another field. And that means that we get students who are interested in things like journalism or public policy or foreign affairs. And they're, try- they're coming into a design classroom trying to understand how can I, how can design help me communicate some question, explore some idea, or just do research, understand what it is that I'm thinking about. That means that we're doing work with, I've had an intro class, I've taught a fabulous intro class in graphic design, which is a new thing for me. I've, until this last year, I've never taught the intro courses. It's, it's a really intriguing thing to see happen. There's a project late in that class that asks students to create an issue poster, a poster about some social or political issue. That's 
not just making the poster or even conceiving of it, but analyzing the issue and arriving at some kind of a point of view, a reasoned point of view, and a reasoned point of view that has a relationship to society more broadly, to our understanding of that issue. And we end up with some surprisingly nuanced, emotionally appealing, clever, and well-crafted posters, just because these students are applying many kinds of knowledge to the questions. How do you see design as a practice evolving in the academic environment? How are, how are universities preparing students that are studying design, uh, looking at future approaches? Oh, gosh, that's that question. That's a really interesting question. Can I, I'd like to invent a time machine, really, come back and talk to you in about 20 years, because I don't, it's, it's, it's an open question in the field. We're at a point where I alluded earlier to a big tent. There's lots of designs in the public eye. It's mm-hmm. popular. It's fashionable. That's crazy. I mean, people, the general public cares about what font shows up on your computer. It's fashionable. And there's many forms. And as I'd said, suddenly people teaching design and the students taking design courses, you have to fit about 50% more material into the same time. Mm-hmm. It's not all going to fit. It doesn't all fit. So we may end up with what we're seeing is in the traditional college environment, four-year college, we're seeing some programs separate out tracks to say about, hey, We'll do video in one place, and we'll do print design in another, and we'll do user experience in another. It's actually rare to see a program calling itself user experience in college. Some programs are saying, well, design is design is design. There are some fundamentals that you need to learn. We'll teach you those fundamentals. We'll teach you to apply them a little more specifically, and we'll give you the tools to go out and learn whatever emerges after your graduation, whatever emerges well. Let's talk about the overlap of design with business. You see major companies like IDEO that really are inspirational in getting people to take design seriously as a practice in the business world. How has this overlap developed? It seems like there's been all of a sudden an interest in product design, uh, design of uh, products, you know, that are that are mobile technology to everything that's redesigning stuff that we use every day, whether it's uh, a tea kettle or something that you would just purchase uh, at Target. Why is design so popular right now? I, it's a it's a fabulous question. How is it? I, I'm going to go back to some, a German industrial designer, German industrial designer working in maybe the 1960s, man by the name of Dieter Rams. You've seen his stuff. He's known for especially work with Brown. So Brown razors, B-R-A-U-N. Brown's razors or radios. Things, objects that are highly usable, that have a personality, and also are efficient in, can be efficiently produced. Dieter Rams is an industrial designer. He's, it's, that's an old tradition. It's one that relates to making products that are mass-producible and yet appealing. And what's what's happened recently is that suddenly that same kind of product mentality, that's appeared elsewhere. It's appeared on software, as you're saying. It's appeared on 
gifts that we could walk down the street and get some, probably find some intriguingly designed aprons or objects to keep around your house, just fun, crafty things. Suddenly, this kind of the kind of expectation of good design that's appeared across our society. And it's a matter, I think, I think we can credit the web for a good part of that. So do you think that it's consumer demand spurred by just purchasing a product that's aesthetically pleasing? Or is it something where we take to design instinctively and know that if a product is well-designed, we should purchase that because it's the best of all options. Well, I'm an optimist and an idealist, so I'd I'd like to say the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I, I think it is the latter, and then to it's also a matter of an ecosystem. So if we're living in a place, if you look at radios, if you look at radios from the 1930s, they're they're a mess. They have buttons sprouting every which way. There's pieces of wood with attached to them and candidly random senseless positions they don't make much sense and they're they have nice curves but that's really about all you can say for them there that that's an ecosystem that where novelty is important where the existence of a radio is important where the radio is this object that is valuable just because it's a radio and once you get to the point where you can have smaller radios cheaper radios more ubiquitous radios We've arrived at a place where the design of that radio starts to matter, where it starts to be need to be something usable and beautiful and efficient, and not just sort of random arbitrary containing random arbitrary bits attached and like you were throwing clay together. How did the designer now become a rock star? Why, why have you seen the popularization of Jonathan Ive? You've got um, so many designers that are now in the public eye. I mean, Jonathan Ivey is just one because, you know, Apple Computer has just taken off and really been an exemplary. Uh, but you you also see so many other popular designers now. Um, anyone really ranging from people in fashion design to um, car automotive design to um, the, really the, the newest type of razor that you can order by mail. Everything's really become about kind of the refinement of the product. How did we get to this rock star designer point? It's funny about rock stars. Rock stars are, they need to be known and they need to have a personality. So, and it's, it's, we've arrived at a place where you can actually name designers, where the average person on the street can at least have a sense of the, the, the origin of an object that they're holding. It's, I would say that it's probably, it probably goes back in large part to, Apple, I did say I'm reluctant to say that because it's a it it gives so much credit to one organization and one set of people. But the they've managed to popularize products that are thoughtfully and intentionally designed, and that have a very distinct personality. Not not even the quality of the work, but the fact that these products are recognizable as from a particular company. That's it's like driving a wedge into a log. Suddenly, we have this idea that design can be recognizable, that you can have room for a rock star out there. So is there anything you'd like to add about 
well, we've been focusing on design for so, so much of the time. Was there anything you'd like to add about how people can get involved with Knowledge Commons DC, how they can take a class, how they can become an instructor, and uh, how they can sign up for their email lists? Well, I still remember how I got involved with KCDC. Mm-hmm. Knowledge Commons is, as I've said, it's a volunteer-run organization. I remember sitting in a coffee shop. It's no longer around, but a coffee shop on 14th Street in D.C., and I overheard a couple of people talking through something about making maps and taking photographs from balloons. That was turned out I I asked, okay, that sounds interesting. I have to ask you what you're doing. They said, we're running a class for a free school. They talked about KCDC. They were running a class about making aerial photographs, DIY aerial photographs, like satellite maps, with weather balloons and just a GoPro camera. Went to the class. That was the first class I took. This is the first session. Ended up volunteering and have subsequently ended up helping organize and teach classes on my own. That's the kind of trajectory that we love. So I'd say we have a website. We have, we're at kcdc.cc and we list all of our classes up there. We also have a newsletter there, which on, in which we'll announce upcoming classes. And there's a list of classes. There's information about how you might propose a class. There's, we've, we very rarely turn classes down. The proposal is there to encourage new teachers to think about, what am I doing? Who is it for? How can I structure this? And we'd love to help any new teachers take an idea they have and turn it into something that'll fly. All right, so you're here to hear. If you want to find out more information, you can go to knowledgecommonsdc.org. And where can they find the podcast? We have a new podcast. There's an historic preservationist named Allison Arlotta who recently approached us and said, Hi, I've taught some classes for you, mostly about D.C. history. How do you like to do a podcast about D.C. history? And we said, well, that sounds fabulous. We did. There's a podcast. It's going to be a series of episodes all about transportation in Washington, D.C. The first one about steamboats and excursion steamers and African-American Washington, especially. That, that, that's up. And it's all linked on our website. It's under the blog. We've yet to, talking about design, we need to figure out how to design the website such that it hosts a podcast successfully as well. So you can find it under the blog for the time being. Great. Thanks so much for joining me today, David. (laughs) Thank you so much. Tune in next time to DC Entrepreneur on WERA and Fridays at 2 p.m. Thanks so much for listening. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog, dc-entrepreneur.com. If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode. And thanks for listening.